Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. As you can hear, I am incredibly, incredibly excited. So if I say to all of you, Pompeii and Herculaneum, which archaeologist comes to mind? And no, 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 don't say Sophie Hay. I know we've had her on. She's not the only one out there. But today we are talking with the fabulous Andrew Wallace Hadrill, who I literally just found out has an OBE. I mean, how cool is that? That's just so awesome. But not only that, he is also Professor of Roman Studies and the Director of Research at the University of Cambridge. And of course, he is a published author. Because if you haven't seen his book on Herculaneum, past and future, then I advise you all to go and get it. It is absolutely stunning. Plus there's loads of other books, but that one for me is probably the best one. You can also find him on TV, all sorts of things. You can see him with Mary Beard, even he hosts his own TV programs. He is absolutely awesome and I'm so excited to be able to chat to him today. So welcome. Hello, Elena. Thank you so much for that really kind introduction. We always, I mean, we always talk about Pompeii. And don't get me wrong, I think the site is absolutely phenomenal and interesting. There's so much more yet to be discovered. But we don't talk about other sites that are around Vesuvius. So you've got a lot of smaller ones. But the one we don't really talk about enough is Herculaneum. So how does the discovery of Herculaneum fit into the story of all of these excavations? Do you, do you know? Do you know what, Alina? Um, when when I did uh, a, a teleprogram on Herculaneum, they wanted, of course, to get Pompeii into it, oh. and 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 the bastards called it the other Pompeii. I'm I said, sorry, no, what? put Herculaneum in the title. And they said, no, nobody's heard of Herculaneum. We're, we've got to call it the other Pompeii. And they tried to egg me on to run Pompeii down, and we went off to Pompeii. And I stood in the Forum of Pompeii, and. He said, I want you to give an idea of, you know, what Pompeii doesn't have that makes Herculaneum so special. And I said, no, Pompeii's fantastic. I, I've done, spent of, as much of my life working on Pompeii as I have on Herculaneum. I'm not going to run this place down. So, That's um, cheeky. That is really, really cheeky. But, you know, uh, and uh, then there, there was a wonderful thing said by the glorious Italian archaeologist called Amadeo Maiuri. And he was responsible for excavating uh, most of the Herculaneum that we can see today. And he worked in the times of, of fascism under Mussolini. Uh, he worked from the 1920s and then right through the war and after the war into the 1960s. So an incredibly long wow. uh, time. 
uh, in charge of those excavations. He was in charge of Pompeii as well as Herculaneum. He did enormous amounts all around the, the place. And he did a lovely television interview right at the end of his life. And, and they asked him, well, isn't there a problem um, with Pompeii, that, uh, with Herculaneum, that it'll push Pompeii off its pedestal? And he said, don't be absurd. How can it push it off its pedestal? How many cities do we have from the ancient world preserved in this way? Just two. <laughs> we need them both. And I so agree with that. And I always say that one of the, the, the most amazing things is that though both cities are destroyed in the same eruption, the nature of a volcanic eruption is so complex that where exactly you're standing in relation to the to the volcano made an enormous difference how exactly you died. That's the, really the, interesting. The, the, the people died in Herculaneum probably 12 hours before most people died in Pompeii. And they die in a different way because, you know, what's chucked up from the guts of a volcano is chemically very, very, very complex. And they get different stuff chucked on them. And everyone knows that Pompeii is covered in little pebbles of pumice, which the Italians call lapilli. And you won't find any of those pebbles of pumice in Herculaneum because they died under a pyroclastic surge, great billowing clouds of, of hyper-hot gas. Uh, and that means that though they died in the same period of time, they died in a different way. And the city was preserved in a different way. And those tiny differences make an enormous difference for us because we can see different things. You just said that, that it was completely different and preservation yeah. is completely different. Can you tell us what the difference is? Sure. Um, uh, uh, so there are two big differences. One is the depth of the cover. Pompeii, which is further away from the, the crater than Herculaneum, uh, gets a relatively shallow cover of these little pumice pebbles. So you're talking about uh, three or four meters at most. Whereas Herculaneum at the deepest point has nearly 30 meters of material on top of it. Wow. And that makes such a big difference. Because as you know, uh, if you're looking at, at domestic remains and one of the amazing things about both Pompeii and Herculaneum is they let us into ancient domestic life. You know, you've got, you've got big public buildings, you've got theatres and amphitheatres and temples and so on from loads of cities around the Roman world. Go to North Africa, terrific stuff there. What you don't have is the intimacy of domestic life, of the house. And what you get at Pompeii is the ground floor only. You can just about imagine a second floor. You can see stairs disappearing up into nothing. Whereas at Herculaneum, you get two floors regularly and sometimes three floors. And that, so that by itself, <laughs> imagine 
if we had to reconstruct what our lives were like from just the ground floor of our houses, we'd get a, a kind of weird view. Mm. So that depth is one thing. And then the other thing is, is, is what I was talking about earlier. It's, it's uh, being preserved in this uh, pyroclastic surge rather than pebbled, pebbles of pumice. And um, it, 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 it's much hotter. Uh, it really cooks everything when it arrives. Uh, it forms a sort of uh, a, a great casing around it. And specifically, it preserves organic materials. It preserves wood, unbelievable amounts of wood preserved in Herculaneum. Uh, and it preserves things like food. I mean, if you want to understand what the Romans ate, you can't do better than go to Herculaneum. Because you, you, you find the carbonized uh, food, um, as well as uh, the material from sewers and, and, and so on. Uh, so it just, it, it's telling you about the same sort of people, but because it's caught at nearly the same moment, but in a slightly different way, it gives you a whole load of extra information. That's just the last so I always say, if you want to get... Um, a feel for what an ancient city was like, the, the big picture. Absolutely go to Pompeii because you can walk for a kilometer in the same city. You can follow the Via della Bondanza. You get a real sense of scale. You get the sense of there being uh, hundreds, thousands of ancient buildings around you. Go to Herculaneum, and what you get is intimacy. You you get far fewer. It's the, the excavations are a tenth the size of those of Pompeii, but you 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 see it in a detail. And the difference made by having organic materials is extraordinary. Um, so you you you've got a close up of people um, that you'd miss in in Pompeii. I'm going to throw something at you and I want you to either dispel it or confirm it. <laughs> so was Herculaneum just for rich people? No, absolutely not. I've, I, I've always denied this. And uh, one of the terrific things about this Italian archaeologist, Amadeo Maiori, is he realised from the very first that you've got the whole spectrum of ancient life. If, if you... You've got some really big, um, beautifully decorated, well-made houses in, in Herculaneum, as, as you do in Pompeii. But you've also got tiny little shops. If uh, An enormous percentage of the people living in an ancient town were little shopkeepers and, and craftsmen and so on. And you get far more of a feel of them in, in Herculaneum. Um, uh, there is that wonderful shop that's uh, part of the House of Neptune and Amphitrite. And you've not just got the bar, you've got the, 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 the wooden rack with the amphorae on it and the containers and the little sort of, um, uh, the, the little back room and the, the little balcony above where stuff could be stored. Uh, you can really get the feel of how an ancient shop might have worked. So no, it isn't. 
just for rich people. I've got another one. This is actually something I came across uh, in doing some reading a while ago. So obviously in Pompeii, you have a theatre, an amphitheatre, and you've got so many great, huge buildings. Now, from what I read, they discovered some um, material culture for for gladiators. And Mm. it had some sort of stamp, or it, it related somehow to Herculaneum. Now, obviously, there isn't an amphitheater in Herculane, but is there a possibility that there could be one somewhere that you've not found? <laughs> well, that makes me laugh, because when I was writing my book on Herculaneum, um, I did a chapter. Um, actually, my, my wife urged me to do it. She said, you know, people want to know what's the difference between these sites. So I did a chapter on, on the differences between Pompeii and Herculaneum. And I wanted to say, well... In Pompeii, you get sex and violence, and in Herculane, you, you really don't. And uh, the, the the absence, I mean, you do get sex. There are some uh, extraordinary graffiti in in in, uh, in Herculaneum, as there are in Pompeii. Uh, but in Pompeii, there are loads of there are brothels and pictures of of people having sex and so on, which um, incredibly rare in in Herculaneum, and. I thought violence, um, there's, there's no amphitheatre, but is there any sign of gladiators? And I went to an exhibition, there was this beautiful gladiator's helmet, um, and there, there, are, there are scenes of, of the uh, fall of Troy around, embossed on the helmet. And, and the label said, um, from found in Herculaneum. Oh, wow. And, and I thought, Oh, <laughs> missing something here. If there's a gladiator's helmet, that implies that there were gladiators, doesn't it? So I, I put that because I'm 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 I'm, on, I'm an honest sort of guy, <laughs> and I thought <laughs> I better put this in the book. <laughs> Though uh, it, there has been found a gladiator's helmet, and later I was talking to the uh, the, the guy at the the Getty actually who organized the exhibition and he said I'm so embarrassed because I realized I gave it the wrong label because some of the old books said that it came from Herculaneum but it must have come from the gladiators barracks in Pompeii oh no so it's okay (laughs) I love that Herculaneum is gladiator free I was right in the first place my (laughs) were right but i love how honest you are about it there's not that many academics out there that would put up their hands say like i was wrong but i love that do you know what do you know what that's what that's what makes research fun it also makes it possible Uh, if if you if you insist on being right all the time you you really get stuck in the groove um and that's true and it's it's just much much more interesting. You you ask questions. You you say, well, I think the answer is this. And if you can show that actually you got it wrong, um, you know you've made a bit of progress. I'm going to talk about some human remains. I mean, for me, the first time I went to Herculaneum, uh, we couldn't. And I've had this rumor dispelled by uh, by a mutual friend of ours um, <laughs> to do with the remains. And um, I didn't get access to be able to see them. So we saw them from a distance. And the second time uh, we, we actually managed to get close to them. But apparently they're not real, are they? Hmm. Well, 
for years, um, in, including when I uh, did did my Herculaneum program, the uh, the the skeletons down by the seashore in Herculaneum were the real skeletons, and um, there were dozens of them. Uh, I, I think that the, the figure for how many were found in all is is a little over three hundred. Oh wow! And half of them had been taken off for analysis, but the other half were left for tourists to look at. And uh, as as was happening at the time in Herculaneum, things were terribly neglected. And there were weeds growing in these skeletons. And I used to protest about it, say, listen, this is, it's really special having this group of skeletons. You can't let weeds grow. And finally, um, uh, a project was done to remove all the skeletons and take them off for analysis. And that's, that's partly been done, been done, partly it's still uh, work in course. Um, and, uh, the best thing was that they made fiberglass molds of those groups of skeletons. And it's much better. And I tell you, they look more convincing now than they, they did <laughs> when they were real skeletons with weeds growing in them. I can tell you, as a tourist, I can tell you, they look very real. They do. They do. They're, they they are brilliantly done. It's you know the Italians are brilliant at doing a number of things, and one of them is 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 making fakes. I love it. So they're brilliant fake skeletons. Um, everyone really enjoys them. Uh, again, there's that paradox, isn't it? That especially especially kids really enjoy looking at this scene of horror. And it is, as you know from seeing it, it's mm. a real scene of horror. It's a tangle of human bodies, some of them protecting e each other, um, uh, uh, and, and some of them in positions of agony, and uh, some of them with their, literally their brains blown out. And yet, extraordinarily, it, we were talking earlier about the difficulty of closing that gap, a gap of 2,000 years in this case. Mm. But any time you look at the past, there's a gap that separates you. And the past is, is dead. And the weird thing is that the spectacle of death brings the past to life. You look at it and say, my God, these are real people who suffered real agony. Wow, I am, ex I am seeing the past. And I think that's always been the case with the skeletons from, from Pompeii as well as those from Herculaneum, that they stir very extraordinary feelings in us. Some people say you shouldn't expose skeletons of the dead to public view, but... Um, uh, I, I think the important thing is that you should treat them with respect. Agreed. It's not a joke, um, uh, but it's also important to see them, uh, to understand that, yes, uh, this, this, this place had real people. And the reason we can see this place so vividly is that they died. It is that moment of disaster which, of course, paradoxically, keep, keeps it alive for us.
So I, I, I've, I greatly value the skeleton. Indeed, one of, one of my greatest dreams, and I, I fear I will go to my grave um, without realising it, but is to, to extend the excavations uh, on the seafront of Herculaneum a little round. Where there's, a, there's an area where we know that there are more skeletons. Oh, wow. And, uh, if only they could be excavated now, not back in the 1980s. You'd have thought in the 1980s they were really up to speed on modern archaeological techniques. <laughs> I'm sorry, they weren't. <laughs> and uh, you could get a hell of a lot more information if you excavated them properly now. So I think there's, there, there, there's heaps more to learn about the ancient world. And one of the ways is, is uh, excavating skeletons carefully. If you do go forward with this project, can I come along? <laughs> I, yeah, I promise well, not to touch anything. I won't touch. I, I will just observe. You know what? Uh, do you know what, uh, Lena? I think the answer is no. You can't, and I can't either, because we're only going to allow specialists in. But you know, you're a specialist. You, no, uh, specialists on ancient skeletons. You, what you need is incredibly scientific approach to it no 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 amateurs allowed anywhere near it i think that's the trouble it was in the 1980s it was excavated by people who knew lots about excavating but they didn't know about excavating skeletons give me a few years these days (laughs) (laughs) these days there are there are loads of specialists who can do it that's what we need do you know, I have one. I have one. We, we just put out a podcast with him and uh, a former, okay. former lecturer of mine. He does, uh, he excavates mummies. So even right. older, even older <laughs> than that time period. So we can always give him a shout and say, hi, do you fancy Absolutely. doing this? And, you know, can we, can we tag along? <laughs> well, it, it, it raises a very interesting question about whose site is this and who should be excavating it? Mm. because there's always been a tension. Pompeii and Herculaneum have always attracted an international audience, an extraordinary, enormous international audience. And from the very beginning, uh, uh, non-Italians have been deeply involved in it. And yet, some Italians at least feel quite strongly, hey, this is our history, our heritage, we ought to be doing it. So that when, the ex- uh, when those skeletons were excavated in Herculaneum back in the 1980s, they called in um, an American specialist called Sarah Beisel. Um, and she was actually uh, kicked out. Uh, and they said, no, 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 we don't need Americans doing this. Well, really? sorry, guys, you actually did need Americans doing it. Um, uh, and in my view, well, obviously, my view is that it is international. It is uh, the heritage of humanity. Mm. But at the same time, you've got to acknowledge um, that it's it's up to the Italian authorities to decide who they want to call in, who they want to collaborate with. No, I agree. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I agree. I've, um, I've got something to admit to you. <laughs> so I, I admitted this to Mary Beard, and we all laughed about it. So do you remember Mary Beard's program on, uh, on Pompeii that you were part of? <laughs> Could I forget? You can't forget because you were working in Pooh, funnily enough. Uh, yes. And I... But, but that, that's when she came after Herculaneum, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. I took her to the loo. We sat oh, yes, together in the loo. <laughs> you did. So I, I was in my first year of my uh, BA History and Archaeology. Mm-hmm. and I was struggling with methods and practice, as you do, and I got stuck on some of the questions, and funnily enough, the night before the exam, I watched uh, the Mary Beard's program, mm-hmm. and one of the questions, I can't remember exactly what the question was, but it was something along the lines of some form of excavation methods, and I thought, oh my God, I am going to use the poo as a prime <laughs> example for my exam. And I passed my exam with a high two one. So thank you very much. <laughs> but it, it's, a, it, it's a very interesting thing about archaeology, isn't it? That most archaeology is below floor level. Mm. I would never so have that, that. So that, you know, you, 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 you find endless graves. Archaeologists are the world experts on, on, on the dead. Mm. Uh, and you find endless drains and all the things that you hide away from normal human sight. Um, and that tends to be preserved very well. So, yes, in, in Herculaneum, I can't remember what the figure is. It's something like 89 separate latrines have been wow. excavated. I mean, what uh, did you find out? Every, that was house, so every house has got a latrine. Wow. What did we find? Yeah. Well, well um, <laughs> so this, this, this was uh, what we called the Great Sewer, though technically it's not a sewer, it was a, a cesspit, but it's, it's, um, it's about 80 metres long and it runs under a, a, a wonderful block of houses, there are th- three stories there, that's one of the points in Herculaneum, which you can see the third floor pretty clearly. Um, and below those three stories is a purpose-built cesspit. And uh, down into it drop uh, dozens of downpipes because 
they almost had one loo per flat. Sometimes there were shared loos, but they regular um, downpipes going down. And that meant that um, the Great Sewer, when we, when we found it, uh, was, of course, full of uh, volcanic material that completely filled it up. And that's one of the amazing things about this stuff. Though it was underground, though it was not, not sealed off, but actually quite hard for material to penetrate to, every corner of the area underground was full of um, rock, that is to say, compacted ash that sets um, as, a, as a very soft stone. And um, uh, so we removed, oh, the, the workmen with their uh, pneumatic drills removed um, a, a considerable depth, depth, a couple of meters of that volcanic stuff, and then hit um, the layer of um, uh, organic remains, let's call it. <laughs> or poo. Shit, in a word. <laughs> uh, and it was, it was such an exciting moment when we realised how much there was down there. Because before I did that project uh, in Herculaneum, of course, I, with Mike Fulford, um, I've been doing a, a project in Pompeii. And... Um, uh, we could, had called in Mark Robinson because there were a lot of pits that were full of rubbish, including uh, organic remains. And Mark Robinson, he's a wonderful, he gets excited about anything, but <laughs> his excitement about what he found down the loo was, was uncontainable. And so I thought, well, we've got to call him into Herculaneum. And when he realised that he had about half a metre deep, a metre wide and 50 metres long <laughs> of Roman poo. Wow. <laughs> My golly, it was in seventh heaven. And uh, so the, the archaeologists dug it out. They put, put it, put it in, in black plastic sacks. Um, 774, I recall. No, it was a dark blue plastic sacks. Uh, 774 sacks of each of about 10 litres. And that's much too much to analyse. And and Mark very sensibly said, look, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a sample and I'm going to look at samples from all down that 50 metre length because there's just a chance that you'll see different diet uh, linked to different uh, households. Mm since their downpipes come down into it. Uh, so he did that with a very good bit of, uh, of sampling. And then he found uh, Erica Rowan was doing her, uh, um, her master's with him. And uh, she, she'd, done, uh, she'd done food studies as well as classics in, uh, in Canada. And she was very keen to work on that. And she spent a happy, happy uh, analyzing just one of his samples, uh, one meter by one meter by half a meter. And it was astonishing just how much you could discover about what they've been eating. Um, dozens of different types of fish, uh, dozens of different nuts and fruit and seeds, um, um, uh, 
um, things like eggshells, but also um, spiny sea urchins, um, which uh, apparently they're, 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 they're delicious. Well, they ate a hell of a lot of spiny sea urchins in, in Herculaneum. So you, you've suddenly got this incredibly uh, vivid window into uh, what, what they're eating. And actually, we were frustrated in one of our hopes, which was that you would find different, um, different food uh, ranges associated with uh, different houses or different downpipes. Uh, because in, in fact, I'm afraid, to say the stuff was a bit liquid and it all <laughs> slurried up together. <laughs> and you've just got one pretty undifferentiated mass going all the way down. But then one of the reassuring things was to, to see, well, actually, they're all, <laughs> though it's mixed up, they're effectively eating the same range of food. I love this. It's just that I would never have thought ever to go into a sewer and analyse poo. <laughs> what else would you do in a sewer? <laughs> but, but when I, when, seriously, the third when, man, I suppose. When I watched this, I mean, it, it just it astonished me because, you know, being young and uh, ignorant and uh, <coughs> cocky as you are, you can be very, very cocky when you're young and ignorant. And I thought the only way you could tell were through bones and, you know, teeth and anything hair if you could find it hair fibers and things and that's the way you tell people's diet but obviously poo just completely i dismissed it and watching you down in the sewer probably um it, it did make me laugh but it was really interesting well, I, do you know what um, i i was amazed i mean it's 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 what you can do with modern, modern scientific techniques mm. what you can find under to the microscope but just one tiny example that uh, erica explained to me was that there is a specific bone in a fish that you and I don't normally encounter because you probably don't eat the head of the fish. Oh, God, no. Um, the Greeks do. They love it. Uh, they'd say it's the best bit. Uh, you pick around all the bones. and you go. Anyway, in their ears, they have a tiny little bone, the sort of size of a lentil, uh, called an otolith which means a, 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 an ear bone. And they can actually, from looking at an otolith, work out what, uh, what type of fish it was. Oh, really? So you can do a, a very precise analysis <laughs> on the otolith alone, because, of course, the other bones will give you lots of other clues. But get an otolith and you know... Uh, you know not only what sort of a fish it was, but how old it was, because, of course, they grow. Fish keep growing. That's incredible. I would not have even thought that. Yeah. It never had occurred to me, but... <laughs> I love science. This is the extraordinary thing, that, that the rich detail... I mean, you're not learning... Are you learning about the structures of the ancient world? Are you learning big things about it? But sometimes history is about looking at tiny things, minute things. And that's what gives it a real feel. And it was, it's what gives it a feeling that you can lean out and touch it. It's, it's here for you. I love that. 
I really do. I, do you know what? I could quite happily listen to you. Can we do a podcast for an hour and a half? No, I'm doing this. Um, <laughs> I, I'm going to touch on something because you know, we, well, you said you're retired, first of all. Um, yeah. I don't believe that because no archaeologist that has ever retired. Um, <laughs> you will always be dabbling. But I know for a fact that there have been some newer, let's say newer, excavations, not full on, but just, you know, a little bit here and there in Pom- uh, Pompeii, in Herculaneum. Sorry, see, Pompeii on the brain. Um, mm. Can you tell us a little bit more what you found? Because I know you found some gems out there. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, so in the course, our project was all about conservation. Um, and I felt very strongly about it because I was, I, I was 16 when I first visited Pompeii wow. and Herculaneum. Uh, you know, a classic family holiday. Um, and we stayed in Sorrento and we visited these two sites. So I met them both at the same time. And by the time um, I, I was involved in the project, you know, that was 30 years back. And I was really shaken by the visible changes caused by neglect. Um, and it, it, it affected uh, Pompeii actually even worse than Herculaneum. Uh, a lot of that has been changed recently. Um, Massimo Osana has done extraordinary things in terms of making, uh, of conserving Pompeii and, and giving it a new life. Um, and I, I felt that it was really important that we, that we actually appreciated what we already had. Of course, it's, it's, it's wonderful doing new excavation, but you, I, I reckon you don't have the right to do new excavation if the old excavations are left falling down. Mm. And my instinct that, that simply by doing conservation, you would find out lots of new stuff was completely uh, borne out. Uh, so uh, one of the things we, we, we did was was working down on the seashore of, of Herculaneum. And we were working down on the seashore because we wanted to get rid of water from the site. And water goes downwards. And obviously the lowest point of, on the site is where it's all going to end up. Yeah. So it was necessary to clear up the area down at the bottom and uh, install proper drainage and just in the course of excavating down there on the seashore where kind of you didn't expect to find anything because it was outside the city we found an in, an entire ancient wooden roof and ceiling oh wow and this and the ceiling um it's uh, one of the things they did in the ancient world was have wooden coffered ceilings where you have lots of little panels which which are richly decorated you you both have a wooden decoration and then you paint them there's gold paint there too and uh it there are enough fragments that it's all fragmentary to to put together a, a picture of the entire ceiling of the room from which it had fallen uh and the wood unlike most of the wood in Herculaneum, is carbonised. But this fell down in the wet seashore um, and it didn't get up to temperature and it was waterlogged rather than carbonised. So 
extraordinary preservation of it. Um, uh, and there isn't another example of an ancient wooden roof and decorated wooden ceiling found anywhere. And that just came up because we were doing the responsible thing and trying to get rid of water from the site. I love that. That is, that's amazing. Please tell me there are going to be photographs of this out there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, oh, we, we published it. I'll send you the links if you want. I will um, be. So anybody who wants the links, let me know. <laughs> including, um, uh, we, we, we've got some brilliant IT guys. Of course, you need IT guys on the, the, uh, the team. And they did wonderful um, virtual reconstruction of the ceiling on the basis of we know these tiny little fragments, you gradually build it together. And so they, they've done their reconstruction of the whole ceiling. And I think, you know, if it had been done for real, you, you would say, oh, how vulgar these rooms were. This horrible, <laughs> brightly coloured ceiling. <laughs> Terrible. Uh, but, but when it's, when it's uh, on a computer, it's very exciting. I'm going to throw another one at you. Uh, if yes. I say the Basilica, mm -hmm. what did you find there? Okay, well, the Basilica actually remains one of our, uh, our many um, in, incomplete, uh, uh, really, dreams, uh, because it was our dream at one stage to excavate the whole of the basilica and of course a basilica in the ancient world is nothing to do with the christian church and it's everything to do with public life it's it's the most important uh public building in an ancient city and we knew that uh, a series of uh, fragments of an enormous inscription had been found there uh it's it's an inscription the fragments that survive have, uh, I think it's over 500 names. But you can work out, because they come from different panels, you can work out that the original must have had something like 2,000 names on it. So you, you've got to have um, the entire population of the city in its final years. Okay, there are no women, there are only men, uh, there are no slaves, though there are a hell of a lot of people who were ex-slaves, were once slaves, and then had become free men. But since women always carried the name of their father, um, and slaves, uh, of course, carry the name that was given to their slave by their slave owner, effectively, you've got a complete prosopography, a complete listing of the families who live in this place. So you can imagine, I knew that there were <laughs> at least another thousand names down there. And I desperately wanted to do more excavation and find the missing fragments. But what we discovered was that in order to do the excavation, we would have to push the edge of the site right back and very close to the edge of the site, there is, there's a road called Via Mare with modern houses on it. And though the houses immediately above the basilica um, were demolished, we, we got the town council to demolish them. 
um, we would need to go further back and knock down more houses. And that was completely unrealistic. So I'm afraid um, what we found in the Basilica was just a, f a few extra fragments because we, we, we cleaned it up. And, um, and the most amazing fragment there was a statue head, the head of an Amazon. Um, and in some senses, it's disappointing because the, the Romans just, uh, they churned off multiples of statues. You know, they, yeah. Every city had to have one. Uh, and already in, in Herculaneum, another version of exactly the same statue head as Amazon was found. But what was special about ours was that the paint was still visible on it. And I'm pretty sure that the reason that the paint was still visible was that it was excavated by conservators. The moment our conservators, and we were doing a conservation project, the moment they saw that statue head, they <laughs> told all the workmen <laughs> all the archaeologists to stand back and they said only we get to touch it and they spent weeks and weeks with you know little paint brushes carefully 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 removing um, uh, the volcanic material and then the the, the 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 result is that you can see very clearly the brown hair um, and the the eyelashes and the, the bright eyes and that again is something that comes to life. The way the way that Herculaneum died is rather special, and it brings back life more vividly. That's just that's incredible, absolutely incredible. So, uh, sticking to the subject of conservation, mm. how do you, how do you conserve such old buildings that are you know? possibly falling apart. Mm. Okay. Um, the, the, I mean, I could... We could probably <laughs> do a whole podcast. I could, I could, I could answer this question for hours and hours and hours and hours. Um, but uh, but I, I want to give you the quick answer. And um, a lot of people kind of imagined that what we would be doing would be using really high-tech modern solutions. And we because we were talking about a whole team of people, a whole group of people, and we, we talked about it a lot. And we gradually became convinced that the best way, the best things we could do to the site were the simplest and most basic. <laughs> they were ma a matter of making sure that the drains worked and the roofs weren't leaking. Just keep the water off it and it stops it. Uh, I mean, the, the rainwater was doing terrible things to plaster work. You can imagine how, if you, if you threw, imagine what happens to a house when it's flooded. Mm. There have been a lot of flooding disasters recently in this country. And everything is ruined by water in the wrong place. And water was was causing an enormous amount of damage on site so we said yeah we're just going to reinvent the whole drainage system of the site and make sure that every every roof is watertight and that has done more to preserve it than 
any amount of fancy chemicals could have done. And in, in fact, one of the things that's most worrying is that uh, in the past, people have thought, ah, if we find the latest product and put it on, this will really conserve it. And it doesn't. So you put a product on and it forms uh, a seal over the surface of plasterwork. And that is fatal because the water builds up behind the now sealed surface. It can't breathe and instead it blisters off. So your clever, clever new chemical product has just destroyed it. So I think we, we, we've formed the ideology that you, 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 you want low-tech, simple, basic solutions. Maybe later someone can do something high-tech. Some, uh, someone has suggested to me we ought to build a dome over the whole site. Um, I don't know. I think that would ruin the ambience of like totally. the sun sets or the sun. So that, I think that was my favourite yes. point. The sunset over Herculaneum. And it was just astonishingly beautiful. You're, you're so right. Because it faces southwest, it catches the evening sun in a really beautiful way. And I've, I've told people before now, but you get the real experience of walking in an ancient street and you can feel the, the, the wind on your cheeks and maybe you feel the rain. And people say, ah, oh, but isn't the, the water what's destroying the site? And, and the answer is not if it falls where it's supposed to. <laughs> if the rain falls on the roofs and the roads, then the rain's just fine. It washes it clean. Rain's a good thing as long as you manage it. Um, and so it would destroy the visitor experience if you put it in a great dome. And the other thing is, if you're going to build a great dome, you've got to define the edge of the dome. You've got to say, where does it begin and end? But we've only excavated a quarter of Herculaneum. You'd be saying, okay, you're never allowed to extend the site because it's now trapped like a fly in amber. Mm. So uh, I, I rapidly decided that building a dome would be a really bad idea. One more thing I'm gonna throw in for conservation, the pigeon problem. Oh, yes. Uh, well, that's that's a very sad story in many ways. Uh, again, uh, the pigeons were causing terrible damage on site. Uh, I'm afraid that pigeon shit running down plaster surfaces is really, really acid and destructive. Um, and uh, building their nests and oh, horrible things. They're also very disease-ridden pigeons. Um, and we said, what's the best way to get rid of pigeons? And again, we found the most effective way is actually the most old-fashioned. Old you bring in falcons, you bring in hawks. Uh, and we've, there was a really nice guy who, who was a falconer, and he brought in four falcons on a regular basis, a couple of times, two, three times a week. And over the course of a year, he reduced the pigeon population to a tiny fraction of what it had been before. And then the tragedy was that he got arrested for something. He, he claimed that it, his car had been stolen and used to ram a, a shop window and um, it wasn't him at all. But 
<laughs> anyway, he got arrested and he went away and he never came back. And we looked around and we couldn't find a new falconer. Um, so the pigeons have come back. Oh, no, if anyone sure. out there happens to know a falconer prepared to visit uh, Herculaneum several times a week, that would be fantastic. There we go, ladies and gentlemen. We have a call for help for Herculaneum. I would please do it because it is such a beautiful site and we'd love to keep it the way it is. So, Listen, this was probably the most awesome podcast I've ever done. Do not tell any other of our um, <laughs> our guests because, or Sophie, for God's sake, because she might listen to this and she's going to call me up. She's going to say, what? <laughs> what? It was all about me. I'm joking. But this was just phenomenal. Having the opportunity to talk to you, having the opportunity to listen to what it's like to work at Herculaneum, what you found, the future of Herculaneum and those darned pigeons. So thank you so much for joining us. Alina, it's been a real pleasure. Join us tomorrow when Lizzie Rogers will be with us to talk all about elite women and travel in the 18th century. We had a great podcast about the Duchess of Portland and her collecting. But what Lizzie does is talk to us all about the women who actually packed their bags and went off traveling in the period. I love them. They're brilliant. Don't miss it. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. <laughs> 